a Cleveland Jewish News production. This episode contains explicit language and graphic descriptions of violence that some may find distressing and that might be unsuitable for some listeners. Discretion is advised. I remember getting a call Sunday afternoon and I couldn't process what I was being told. That's a call that no one wants to ever have. I remember looking at my wife, you know, when, when the realization that Eliza had died, you know, hit me. And uh, I said, I don't know if I'm going to be okay. Yeah, I mean, it was just a total shock. It was uh, hard to imagine. I was just sitting there in shock for a while and realized I needed to come back to Cleveland, but I couldn't move, so... I've never screamed like that in my entire life. Screaming at the top of my lungs several times. And I don't know if that's like a typical response for trauma. And then just kind of like being numb, like truly numb. Like I, it was cold outside, it was snowing and I was just in pajamas and slippers with no jacket and was laying on the driveway with snow. I didn't feel how cold it was. Where were you? Where were you when you received the worst news of your life? I bet you remember every detail. Who told you, how they told you, their exact words. And I bet you also remember the shockwaves that news sent through your body, your entire world. These moments change us. The tragedies that led to them define us. We often organize our lives around them as everything that happened before, and everything that came after. For Eliza Sherman's family, whose memories you just heard, the watershed was March 24, 2013. That cold, cloudy Sunday was the day their mother, their sister, was taken away from them, stabbed to death in downtown Cleveland. It was the day everything changed. Not just for their family, but for Eliza's friends, too. Eliza had been at a crossroads. After decades of an unhappy and abusive marriage, her divorce trial was days away. There was hope on the horizon. The future she envisioned and shared with loved ones, new home, new confidence, new calm, was the stark opposite of the future that befell her. Optimism was shattered by violence, replaced by grief and despair. But it wasn't only Elisa's family and friends who were left to sort through the emotional aftermath. Around 5.26 p.m. that night, uh, that's when I first heard her screams. He was a complete stranger, a stranger who, until now, has kept his part of this story inside. Elisa's impact on his life is permanent, but he only knew her for a few harrowing moments, her final moments. Until the day I die, I'm going to be thinking about Lisa Sherman. And uh, I, literally, I wake up every morning, and she's one of the people that are on my mind. I didn't know her name. Uh, I didn't know anything about her. Uh, my primary goal was to rescue her, save her life. I'm Mike Butts. And I'm Sarah Shookman. This is Eliza, her story at 10 years, a Cleveland Jewish news podcast about Eliza Sherman's life, loss, and legacy. Welcome to episode two. 
Mike and I are both journalists who for years have reported on Elisa's story. For many, her name is associated only with tragedy. Beachwood nurse and mother of four on the verge of a disputed divorce trial, stabbed 11 times and left for dead on the sidewalk. It's been 10 years and her case remains unsolved without a suspect. In episode one, we started at the beginning, Elisa's beginning, and introduced you to, not the murder victim, but the kind, caring, joyful, and principled woman whose background too often gets left out of news coverage. Today, we jump ahead to her end, March 24th, her last day on this earth and everything that day has come to represent. The weather on Sunday, March 24th, 2013, was what you'd expect in Cleveland that time of year. Skies were overcast and a chill was in the air. But for Eliza, the air was ripe with something else, hope. Tensions in her marriage to Sanford Sherman had simmered for years. Beachwood police reports show 22 calls had been made to their home on Pennhurst Drive for domestic disturbances. Her longtime friend, Jan Lash, remembers the emotional toll it all took. We all knew the trauma that she was living every single day. And living through that every single day with her was, was horrible. To see someone that you love have to live this way. That trauma was predominantly verbal abuse. Arguments, raised voices, concerns over children and money. A civil suit filed after her death outlines concerns Eliza had over family bills and assets she believed her husband hid from her. It also makes claims of exotic dancers and extramarital affairs. Samford retired from ophthalmology and closed his severance circle practice in 2004, when he was just 48 years old. Jan recalls this offered Eliza the opportunity to revive her nursing career. She'd put it on hold to raise her children, now school age and older. Going back to nursing helped her escape the toxic environment at home, but it played another important role. Eliza was now, again, making a meaningful difference in people's lives as an in vitro fertilization nurse. And along the way, she received respect from all her colleagues. Her confidence was slowly being restored. Another longtime friend, Mary Fuhrer, noticed the difference that made. I mean, it's amazing she finally had the courage to really go through with this divorce. I mean, because it was years in the making. Years. It was like War of the Roses. It was bad. On March 24th, two years after filing for divorce, Eliza was finally only two days away from her divorce hearing. Her new beginning was in sight. That Sunday afternoon... She was scheduled to meet with her divorce attorney, Gregory Moore, at the Stafford & Stafford Law Firm offices on Earview Plaza in downtown Cleveland. The firm, now known as Stafford Law Company, specializes in divorce and family law and has built a reputation around taking a hardball approach to its cases. That's why a friend had recommended the firm to Eliza, anticipating the battle she was in for. She originally hired Joseph Stafford to represent her when she filed for divorce in 2011. But in March 2012, he was suspended by the Ohio Supreme Court for violating six of the state's rules of professional conduct, accused of fraud, deceit, and dishonesty, 
His brother and business partner, Vince Stafford, had been suspended by the same body since April 2011. With the Staffords suspended, Aliza's case fell to Moore. He and Aliza had met the day before, Saturday, March 23rd, to prepare for Tuesday's divorce hearing. But later Saturday, he contacted Aliza to say he found something else he felt they needed to review and asked that she return on Sunday. Aliza's brother, Harry, was on the phone with Aliza as she drove downtown. She told me that the meeting was scheduled for 2.30, but she called her attorney to delay it to 3 o'clock. And then she told me it got delayed till 4, and then it got delayed till 5. And I, don't, I never asked her, well, who delayed it those next two times? But it wasn't her. When Eliza arrived at the firm's offices at 55 Erie View, she couldn't find more. Erieview Plaza is a narrow, pedestrians-only passage that runs between Cleveland's main artery, East 9th Street, and East 12th Street. On the south side of the street is the Galleria at Erieview Shopping Center, a partially empty former mall. On the north side is the imposing, multi-tenant building where the law firm's offices are located. Monday through Friday, this central business district buzzes with activity. Workers bounce back and forth between meetings, and you might catch nearby residents grabbing lunch or coffee at the Galleria's food court. But on this Sunday, the streets were empty. No sporting events, no conferences in town. The wind off Lake Erie discouraged anyone from staying outside. We can't be sure but it's conceivable Eliza passed no one as she parked her car at a metered spot along East 12th Street and walked down Erie View toward the glass doorway. The brutalist, fortress-like building was locked because it was the weekend and many offices inside were closed. She texted to let Moore know she was downstairs, waiting outside. He eventually responded and told her he was there. Records show Moore was not actually there, but we'll get into that later. When she asked him to unlock the door, that didn't happen. Seconds after, she told Moore she was going back to her car because it was too cold outside. Eliza was stabbed 11 times. And I, I was on the phone with her until about 10 after 5 when she parked the car and she got out and she said she's going into the building to see her attorney. And it was 10 minutes later when this attack happened. Aliza's friend Jan was also in touch with Aliza that afternoon. We missed each other during the day. And then I called her. She says, oh, my God, I, I have to go see Greg. He changed the times. You know, I have all my papers together. You know, I have to get this ready in two days. It's got to be done. And um And she said, you know, he's changed the time on me a couple times today already. And um, I'm so frustrated. She was extremely frustrated. And then she texted me um, an hour later at 4.30 saying, um, you know, thanking me for, you know, for being there for her. And... um, I'm sorry. Um, That was just the last time. And I am sick that I didn't go with her. 
I just kind of saw her laying there, uh, like she just gave up. So I instantly ran to the door. And as soon as she heard that door open and heard my voice, that's where she kind of came back. And that's where, you know, I jumped into action. We rarely consider the impact of finding a body or witnessing a crime. In books and movies, it's often a stranger who plays this part. Their role is simply to advance the narrative. Their identities are unknown and their feelings left unexplored. But in real life, these chance encounters that last only a few minutes leave marks that last a lifetime. That's Kenny Shepard's story. And she was laying stiff in a, you know, kind of like a sleeping position, face down. And when she turned over, I saw the severity of the situation. There was a lot of blood all over the place. And I wasn't sure what was done. I wasn't even aware it was a stabbing. I was thinking she was shot. Went up to her, said, are you okay? And that's where she turned around. I saw everything. And she, all she was screaming was, help me, help me. I remember the day like it was yesterday till this day. On March 24th, 2013, Kenny was up on the fourth floor of the Erie View Plaza building, monitoring the international network of the telecommunications company he worked for. He was relatively new and assigned to weekends. He just earned his degree from ITT Technical Institute in 2012, and now he was working a job he was good at and starting a promising career. He felt good about life and held his head high until he heard Aliza's screams. When she screamed the second time, it was like a blood curling scream, and I knew it wasn't normal. Knowing he had to be one of the only people in the building, he rushed down the stairs toward the lobby. The elevators were too slow. She was literally at the front door of where that building is, 75 building. She was laying right there at the front. Kenny was concerned for his own safety too. For all he knew, the attacker was lurking nearby, watching his every move. And as a 28-year-old black man, he feared how police would respond when they arrived on scene. You remember what you had on? Yeah. What was it? Um, it was an all-black sweat outfit. You know, I, I like to wear a hat, so I had a hat on. She looked like she was a well-established woman. You know, she had a lot of um, expensive things around her. And one thing I didn't want to be confused was that I'm the person responsible for this or I was trying to rob this person, especially what I was wearing that day. I didn't want them to think that. Kenny did everything he could that day, probably more than most of us could. We've chosen not to share the call here out of respect for Elise's family, but Kenny first called 911 and pleaded for an ambulance in this life-or-death situation. He ran into the street to look for a dropped weapon or even footprints, but found none. Not wanting to abandon Elisa, he quickly returned to her to comfort her. Cleveland police, fire, and paramedics soon arrived. Kenny was questioned by police and gave them as much information as he could. He explained that, on a quiet weekend, the only way to access the building where he worked and where the Stafford and Stafford law offices were was with an ID badge. Within a half hour, he was back upstairs. A couple of hours later, he spoke with Cleveland police detectives who called. There was a lot that was running through my head. I was definitely in shock. Uh, a huge 
fear hit me too because I'm in the middle of a major crime scene here and I wasn't expected to walk into this. You know, so I was kind of scared of uh, what that's going to bring. Uh, one thing that I was also feeling was like, uh, you know, this is my time to step up and do something that could potentially be helpful for another person, you know, in, th in this case was saving her life. So that was like one of the biggest things that was on my mind. Uh, it was a lot of anger about the whole situation that somebody did this to a woman on a Sunday. And after I was kind of very up, still am upset about that. Somebody would do that to her. He also has concerns, many concerns, over how emergency personnel and first responders handled the situation. You'll hear more about those concerns in the next episode of this podcast. But for now, it's important to understand these moments changed Kenny's course in life. I was a very career-driven person. I was trying to get my bachelor's degree at the time. And, you know, I felt like such a failure by letting her die like that, that I kind of didn't think I was going to be much more after that. I felt like, you know, I'm not even going to be that great in this career if I can't even do the basics here. So, I, I don't know, I kind of beat myself up a lot about this day. Um, and, I, you know, it's definitely affected me till now. His sleep is haunted and restless. His ability to trust the world around him diminished. His mental health distressed by the trauma. Fearing for his own life is the price he pays for being a good Samaritan that day. They probably saw me the entire time to see what I was going to do, what I might know. They were probably surveying the situation, you know, and then they just ran away like a coward that they were that day. So now that they see me standing there and they see that I came out of that door, I'm thinking they're probably coming after me next. You know, so I kind of went into this underground state where I, you know, I kind of blocked myself off from the world. So just to prevent anything happening to me or my family. For Kenny, March 24th, 2013 is when the world started to close in on him. Anxiety and distrust intrude upon every interaction. He can't shake a sense of failure. He works to overcome these challenges, and he prays. In those prayers, he says her name out loud, Aliza. I want her to know I'm still thinking of you. You know, uh, I'm sorry about everything that happened. You know, I wish I could have did a lot more to, you know, make sure you were still here with us, you know. Aliza had traveled alone. No one was with her. Kenny didn't know her name. It took hours for people to realize something was wrong. Her daughter, Jen, in graduate school at the time, had been cramming for a pharmacology exam. She received a text message from Eliza at about 2.55 that afternoon, letting her know she was on her way downtown to meet with her attorney. But otherwise, and uncharacteristically, Jen and her mom didn't connect that day. Eliza knew her daughter was in study mode. But I actually didn't talk to her that day, which is just, I don't even know how to put it into words. But I talked to her every single other day, probably five to ten times a day. Like, never went to bed without saying goodnight. And even when I worked night shift, like, she would call into the unit and check on me at, like, 1 a.m. because she'd still be awake. As the evening wore on, however, Jen tried to get a hold of Eliza, but couldn't. A gut feeling started to tell her something was wrong. Her instincts compelled her to search for her mom. She abruptly left her stolen home 
in her pajamas and slippers and frantically drove around east side suburbs trying to retrace Elisa's steps. Eventually, she received word that police were on the way to the family home in Beechwood, but they wouldn't say why they were coming until they could do so in person. Jen waited in the driveway with her brother, Jeremy, who at 17 still lived at home with Elisa in Sanford. When police arrived, two officers approached. Jen pulled one close and cried, Is my mother dead? The officer said, I'm sorry to say, your mom was killed. I remember just being in shock. I mean, on the one hand, you know, she had said to me so many times, if, you know, that she was worried and if something ever happened to her, make sure, you know, the truth was brought to light. And, um, but it's, it's a feeling that's really hard to put into words. Um, I just was screaming. Another of Jen's brothers, Jason, was a med student at Ohio University at the time. I had a big exam. It was during the March Madness tournament. I was with my buddy watching a bunch of the games, but I had a big test the next day. So I went home, and it's just one of those things like you read about in books, but I just had some feel in my gut that like something was weird. And then I got a phone call um, from my brother. That was Jeremy calling. It's only what happened, and is like, six o'clock, six thirty on a Sunday. And then I was just sitting there in shock for a while and realized I needed to come back to Cleveland, but I couldn't move, so to spend the night there and drive home in the morning and I remember it was raining the whole ride home. Athens, Ohio, where OU's campus is located, is more than three hours away from Beechwood. But yeah, just, I, I remember like it was yesterday, I was watching basketball. An hour later, my whole life is fucked. States away, Aliza's brothers also learned the horrifying news. Jen called me up and asked me if I'd talk to Aliza and, you know, she's been trying to reach her for hours and she, you know her mother's not answering and did I talk to her and you know I tried to call Lisa's phone a couple of times and there was no answer and this is Elisa's brother Harry Zinn who lives in New Jersey hundreds of miles away but still so close to what was unfolding in Cleveland Elisa always spoke to my mother every day too uh, Jen I think reached out to our mother to ask if she had heard from her which she hadn't and, um, you know, the longer that went on, the more we you know, tried to rationalize that she maybe was at the meeting or she was tied up and she'd get back to us. And I mean, it was just a total shock. Shockwaves rippled through the family as the news began to spread. That's a call that no one wants to ever have. And I remember we were on the phone, I mean, I, on the phone with Harry and it was right before Passover, actually. And uh, that was tough. That was another of Eliza's brothers, Ed Zinn. Passover is one of the holiest holidays on the Jewish calendar. It lasts a week, but it's during the first two days, from sundown Monday, March 25th, to sundown Wednesday, March 27th that year, that observant Jews abstain from work and other activities. 
Jewish funerals typically take place one to two days following death, but Passover meant Elisa's funeral was delayed until Thursday, March 28th. Harry and his family drove through the night Wednesday from New Jersey to attend the service. They were joined by about 600 others at Berkowitz Kuman Bookatz Memorial Chapel in Cleveland Heights. It wasn't until after the funeral that Ed, who lived in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, planned to break the news to their mother. She also lived in Florida. At 87 years old, Doris, a Holocaust survivor, had herself been hospitalized for congestive heart failure since March 23rd and wasn't fit to travel back to Cleveland. Sharing Eliza's fate was a heavy burden. Ed dreaded telling Doris as she and Eliza were particularly close. Jen joined them by phone for support while Ed went to Doris's hospital room, but they were surprised. Call it a mother's intuition, but somehow Doris already knew. Don't even like to think about it still because I, you, I gotta tell you, I, when I see things on TV, like bad events or bad things that happen to other people, I usually have to turn away because I start reliving my own traumatic experience from that. It took me to a dark place in the world that I wasn't sure I was going to be able to crawl out of. It's like you were in a black hole and it was sucking you in and you just weren't sure. And it, it took a long time to come out of it, to be honest. It took months. Elise's longtime friends, her longtime confidants, were deeply affected. Was anything left unsaid between them? No, says Mary. They always shared their concerns and love with Eliza. We all really loved her, and so our conversations with her were always trying to make her more upbeat and positive. If we saw what was going to happen in the future, of course, there'd be words to be said, but we were afraid of that, what was going to happen. At least I know I was, and I know that you were. But regrets over dashed dreams remain. Her friend Jan remembers shopping for furniture with Eliza for a new home she hoped to buy after the divorce. Finally looking forward to a future, and then that future is, is gone. What ifs haunt them, too. Another good friend, Maria Zuhl, who for years worked with Eliza as a nurse, remembers March 24th, 2013, and wishes she could have done more. The loss still, and will always, sting. Every time I met my other friend who was a nurse with us, too, I'd say, I don't know, to her, I'm worried about Lisa, you know. I would always, that would be the first thing i say to her when we'd be going out. I just am sorry if I say something to her now and I say it now. I wish I would have been there for her. I wish I, I, wish I could have done more for her. Should have been there for her more. So I'm committed to get her justice. I'm committed to get her justice. We had like one year that it was sunny, like one year. It's usually cold. It's usually cold. Kind of fitting, right? Yeah.
Jennifer Sherman is arriving at 75 Erie View Plaza, bouquet of flowers in hand. It's March 24th, 2023. We'll move down there. I'm just gonna like scatter it in front of this right here. Right, this sign I usually do. This is where she was, right here. She was right here, Aliza. Jen is back at the place her mother was attacked and taken 10 years ago. Today, like every March 24th that's passed since, that empty space of sidewalk bears Aliza's photo and those flowers. Oh, it's cold. Oh, it's always colder down here. Justice for Aliza became a rally cry in the very early days after Aliza died. It was not just a wish, but a demand from those who loved her dearly. Find justice for Aliza. A group of community members dedicated themselves to the case and efforts to keep the investigation in the public eye. They've held a Mother's Day community walk, rallied outside Cleveland Police Headquarters to raise awareness for safety on downtown streets, conducted a women's self-defense class, partnered with Cleveland-based Mace brand to distribute pepper spray. They've shared red bracelets, magnets, and t-shirts with her photo, even a billboard near a heavily trafficked intersection, all with that message, justice for Eliza. And many times they've returned here to Erie View. Definitely hard being here, you know, when I turn around and, and look at the floor and, you know, think of those pictures that were initially, you know, posted online with her, with her shoes and her folder and her pink glasses case that I remember her pulling out so many times. Um, and I stand here, it's, it's hard, but um, it's also to me a, a symbol of um, perseverance. This year, like many in years past, there were supporters with those wristbands. Sarah and I were there, reporters, news cameras. Jen takes her position in front of them, flanked by Jan, Maria, and other friends. Jason, his fiancée, Janie, and her family are here, too. So thank you all for being here today. Today marks 10 years since, you know, our mom, Eliza, um, was brutally murdered right here outside 75 Erie View. And, you know, we continue to come here every single year until someone is held accountable. And that, you know, will never change, although we hope... We just hope that we are not here next year. Hopefully this year we'll get the answers we're looking for. Uh, it's just kind of frustrating, frankly, that we have to keep coming back here every year, but we will until hopefully we don't have to anymore. So just thank you guys for being here. That was Jason, the event's only other speaker. We usually do a moment of silence to just, you know, stop and remember what happened here and to also remind everyone that you know there's a killer that is still walking the streets free um, and you know this person needs to be held accountable if they were able to get away with something like this in broad daylight once who's to say they can't do it again our mother deserves justice and uh, so we'll ask that everyone take a moment of silence to just remember Lisa This memorial is simple. 
It's changed shape and length throughout the years, but the sentiment is the same. People come to remember and honor Eliza and to make sure her story doesn't fade from the public eye. Reminders of support from friends can be comforting, but without exception, everyone who attends wishes the memorial wasn't needed. I hate this. Like, I, I really hate coming here. Um, the years in the past when we've had it be like a bigger thing, it was like, it was very somber, but then I saw everyone here, so at the same time it was kind of like a happy, not happy, but like something that made me feel good about the day. This year, the memorial was smaller because it followed a private fundraiser event held the night before to jumpstart the Eliza Sherman Fund that Jen started at Cleveland Clinic. We'll learn much more about that in a later episode. It's really weird because the first few years were just like, it was still so fresh and it's still fresh. It's, I still think about it all the time, but, you know, life's moved on and it's just a, it's a day I don't really look forward to every year, but it comes and we deal with it and move forward. So, Moving forward is a difficult concept considering this event is meant to make sure investigators, the public, the rest of us, do not actually move on. No one. No one moves on until there's justice for Eliza. But every year, the news crews that come pack up their cameras and tripods and continue to their next assignment. Friends and family cannot move on, but they return to their cars and drive back to the suburbs. The emotional hole that for at least a few minutes gets filled by being surrounded by familiar, caring faces reopens, and the hollowness of life without Eliza seeps back in. This year, though, there was another unexpected visitor in the crowd, another soul stuck in his grief. He stood toward the back, out of the way, not wanting to draw attention away from Eliza and her family. It was Kenny Shepard. I turned, and I saw him, and I was like, I, I just had a feeling that was him. You know, I've never met him had a feeling. There are moments in their conversation too private to share, but others, it's worth straining to listen. I don't mean to. That breaks my heart to hear that. Thank you, girl, for not leaving you I thought about you Think about you guys, I just didn't want to go out of my boundaries and, you know, I know you guys are going through a tremendous time of pain right now. And I didn't want to intrude, man. No. I feel like if this is going to be the right time, we'll figure it out. No, I'm, I'm so happy to meet you. Glad to meet you, too. Yeah, you should know, like, so my mom, truly, like, she, she was, like, felt like no one should ever die alone. Like, I don't know if we, when we talked about it, because that sounds kind of morbid to talk about, but... I, I think being like a nurse, she just always felt that way, and so. She didn't deserve nothing that day. No. That was the worst thing. It still haunts my mind. I'm sure. And I do apologize. I wish I could have saved her life. I, I don't. I, that was my goal. Believe me, I wish I could have. I feel like I failed her. No, you didn't. If I, you, if anything, just know, like, I, if anything has brought me comfort over the years, it was knowing she wasn't alone. <laughs> so thank you. Of course, of course. <laughs> I just, I'm in pain because I, I wish I could have been there two minutes earlier. I wish I would have gone with her that day. 
I wish I would have talked to her that day. Kenny has come to this vigil before, but he's never met Jen through the crowd. In fact, on March 24, 2019, Kenny left Eliza Sherman's vigil for a family gathering where he met his now wife. Her initials are the same as Eliza's, A.S., and that he met her on March 24th, the same day Eliza entered his life years earlier, feel like more than coincidences. That's how I feel. I, like, I think about that. Like I feel like your mom sent her to me. I believe that. Oh my God, I love that so much I could cry. Sarah and I watched this unfold in real time. We knew something special was happening, a moment 10 years in the making. This March 24th was a new day and took on a new direction. A signal, perhaps sent straight from Eliza herself. So that, that really seemed to change the dynamic of today. I feel like I'm like floored. Like I don't even, I'm almost speechless. Clearly not, but almost, which is, you know, a hard thing. And I said to him, I've never actually cried standing here. And this is the first time ever. And I always kind of thought, like, wow, like, it's, it reminds me, like, you just become numb. But I don't know, just to meet Kenny and to hear what he had to say and to see him cry, like, it hurts my heart to know someone else is hurting so much. Mike, it happened the way it was supposed to, that my mom, like, it was, like, just you and Sarah. And that's, like, for whatever reason, I think we probably need each other you know I, I know he didn't know her very well but he sounds like he's he in the short time he knew her like really got an understanding of who she was like he said um and he looked in her eyes he just saw kindness and i, I don't know i hate that he's suffering so much and i want to help him because it would break my mom's heart to know how much she's suffering. Now I feel like she just told me what my next focus is and it's going to be to help him. On this day, or perhaps especially on this day, Eliza is still working in people's lives. Eliza's legacy and how she's inspiring change is still ahead on her story at 10 years. But first, on the next episode, we'll dive into the investigation and sit down with the new eyes on this cold case. I guess, has it been worked on in the last month or is it really dependent? It's been worked on today. Okay, today. Yep. Right. And it'll be worked on after this. Eliza, Her Story at 10 Years, is produced by the Cleveland Jewish News. Executive producers are Kevin S. Edelstein and Jennifer Sherman. Today's episode was produced by Mike Butts, Amanda Kane, Deanna McKeegan, Cheryl Sadler, and me, Sarah Shookman. It was edited by Amanda Kane and Deanna McKeegan and written by Mike Butts and me. Special thanks to Adam Freed, Tracy Porter, and Jennifer Sherman. Cover art design by Bella Bendo and Jessica Simon. Our theme music is Particles by Nobu. Additional music included in this episode is by EDOK, Artie Sun, Alan Pertez, Hans Johnson, Frank Schlimbaugh, 
Shahid Mustafafar, Tamir D. Klein, and Nobu. The reward for information leading to Eliza Sherman's killer stands at $100,000, the largest reward in the history of Crime Stoppers of Cuyahoga County. Anyone with information regarding Eliza Sherman's murder should contact Crime Stoppers at 216-252-7463 or 25crime.com. That's 25crime.com. Callers can remain anonymous and are eligible to receive a cash reward if the information given leads to an arrest or grand jury indictment of a felony offender. To learn more or support the Eliza Sherman Fund, visit give.ccf.org slash Eliza Sherman Fund. To read more about Eliza's story and listen to other episodes in this series, visit cjn.org slash podcast. If you or someone you know has been affected by the themes discussed in this podcast, we encourage you to reach out to a mental health professional or a helpline dedicated to providing support.